0: This whole project started when someone sent me some live recordings of me and Maggie from years ago. And I didn't have any recordings of, a, of just the two of us live. I had the record that we made in uh, 1975, Seductive Reasoning. You know, I have those uh, recordings were done, but at some point, and this is all actually in the book, it, the story is sort of told in the course of going through the book. But at one point, when we were in our early 20s, Maggie, um, she threw all of the recordings of us away, you know, she threw them down the chute in the apartment we were living in. And, um, so, you know, I didn't know of anybody that had any of those, but, but then these, the ones that are on this project surfaced. And, uh, there they are, you know. So that was the beginning of the project was someone sending me these live recordings and they were in a, you know, in a club with an audience and they were direct. To the board, you know, so they were not mixed in the studio. There was no auto tuning. There was nothing about them that was, you know, tampered with at all. So that was the beginning of working on the book.
1: Did she throw them away accidentally? Was it an act of spite? Why would she throw all of those precious documents away?
0: No, it wasn't an act of spite. I think it was more uh, a feeling of. Have you ever had this? I actually did a similar thing with my, I had 30 years worth of journals. And at one point I thought, these are pulling me back into the past. And I just, I thought, I don't want to, you know, have these boxes of notebooks. And and so I did a same thing. I threw them away and uh maybe she was in the same frame of mind of just i want to go forward you know
1: the sense that they were almost tethering you to the past
0: well that was in my case that was the truth but uh i i never really knew why maggie did that because i was upset that she did it because i felt like oh no you know (laughs) all those songs certain songs were entirely lost.
1: At very least, if you're going to do that, you know, ask me first.
0: Yeah, there was a bit of that. But then I also realized that um, it was a, it was kind of an extreme thing to do and that she very much wanted to do that. So I uh, I felt bad about it, but I moved on from it, you know. I mean, it was many, many years ago. But when these... Recording surfaced in 2019. Now, hearing the sound of just the two of us without the production that would occur on albums, it brought me right back to this time period, you know, and, and then uh, that began working on this, what turned into this book, With the QR codes, but it really started out because Michael Tannen, who had been Paul Simon's business partner at the time that we were signed to their company in 1970 something, he, it was his idea that we should try to make an audiobook and that we should do all these interviews with people. So Patterson, for example, remembered. He was nine years old when we went down to Muscle Shoals and worked on our record. And he remembers us.
1: His dad was a player.
0: His dad actually saved the project because <clears throat> we were insisting on playing our uh, own. I should guitar. correct myself.
1: His dad is a player. His dad continues to play. should not use the past tense.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, David, is he's amazing.
1: He helped pull the, the project together?
0: Well, I would say he more than helped it. I would say he and Jimmy Johnson, they saved it because we were sent down there to work at the the whole idea, I don't know if you can really relate to this, but in those days, the whole ball game was trying to get on commercial radio. Do you know what I mean? Like nowadays, there's all these outlets for alternative, type of things. But then, if you signed with someone like this, our record came out on Columbia Records, they wanted a radio hit. You know, they weren't doing you a big favor by signing you, you know. So that record took a year and a half to make, and we were sent over to England, and we worked with Paul Samuel Smith over there on some tracks. Then we were sent back to New York, let's now go down to Muscle Shoals and see, because they were famous for making hits, you know. So Barry Beckett was the piano player, and he was uh, given the job of producing this us, our record. And he quit over the issue of us insisting that we play our own guitars, because we had, we had, only played with each other for like eight years. And we had these arrangements that were, that's all we knew how to do. You know, I didn't really know how to sit down in a jam session and play along with Beatles songs. You know, we just, we worked on these songs that mainly Maggie wrote. So it became an issue. And so then they were going to, there was a meeting in the office at in the Muscle Shoals studio about you know Barry quitting and David and Jimmy Johnson they stepped up and said we will take over the producing of this and uh, they I really think of think back on that and realize that they saved this record the two of them you know. It wouldn't have happened if they didn't do that,
1: Maggie. As was for want has kind of forced her way into Paul Simon's life. You've signed his contract. You've got this album coming out. You're recording with world class soul musicians at Muscle Shoals. It must have felt like you had made it at that point.
0: Well, no, because you see, we uh, if you and when you when you read through the book, you'll see that what happened was we went. Our father brought us to audition for a a radio show here in New York with a guy named Izzy Young. He was part of the scene in the 1960s, and he had a show on WBAI, a folk music show. So we went to audition for Izzy Young, and Dave Van Ronk happened to be visiting Izzy Young, and he heard us. And he brought us around the corner to his apartment where we met his wife, Terry Thal, and she started managing us. So she's the person who told Maggie that Paul Simon was teaching a class, you know, at this building at NYU, and we were not students there, you know, so, but she, she knew what, day the class was, and she went and waited for him.
1: She managed herself out of a job, it sounds like.
0: Well, no, because actually, Terry Thal is a very interesting person, and she's writing a book about her experiences. We met her and Van Ronk at the end of the 60s. So they, all of a sudden, we were coming in from New Jersey on the bus, you know, and we would stay overnight in there apartment and play at the gaslight and the bitter end and they kind of took us on board you know i was 15 years old at that point you know it was we were we were really just kids you know and they and terry was the person who had us audition for this group called the the coffee house circuit who sent people around to colleges and they offered us a contract, so I was that's that's how I spent my senior year was traveling all over the country with Maggie. And it's a very unusual story because uh, I don't really know anyone else that had an experience like that. We were very young. There were lots of runaways at the time, you know, people running away from home. It wasn't that. we were being hired. You had to show up in West Virginia at the college that you were playing. Then you had to show up in Wisconsin. You know, we went to all these places and we had never been anywhere before. So it was really like this kind of wide-eyed, uh, you know, two girls traveling around by ourselves for about two years.
1: I know there was a sense in which, you know, your father played a role, whether accidentally or intentionally, of really kind of getting the ball rolling on your career. I believe you dropped out of school in order to pursue this. What were your parents' feelings about that decision?
0: I didn't have to drop out of school because we lived in a town uh, called Park Ridge in New Jersey with a pretty small high school. So when this opportunity came up, uh, my father and I went down and spoke with the principal of the school. And everyone felt like this was such an amazing opportunity. But also, you shouldn't have to drop out of school because of it. So I actually did my homework. And uh, when we were on the road, you know, we were going to colleges. So there were libraries. You know, you could go in and do your term paper. You could read about I remember doing a term paper on John Keats, you know, going to the library, reading. Uh, I actually did graduate from high school, even though I was not there. My mother was much more... She felt that I, in particular, was too young, because at that point, I was 16, about to turn 17, And she felt like, you know, she's too young. But the thing is, the organization that was sending us, you know, we went to their offices and stuff. It was a very almost wholesome kind of seeming place. It wasn't like, oh, you're going to go off and run away from home kind of thing. You know, we were very much monitored if we didn't show up at the next place, you know, there would be someone would send out a flare. And it's very different from now. You know what I mean? Like you didn't have, you didn't have like lots of kidnappings. I I don't ever remember hearing of anyone getting kidnapped. People in my generation, you know, I'm about to be 70, you know, so this was like the er the early 1970s. Everyone was out and about hitchhiking around, you know, you there was this whole culture of young people that were on the move at that point.
1: I'm from San Francisco originally, so I'm very acquainted with how that went down. But uh, I can also very much see your mother's point of view. I, I think that was a fair, a fair concern that she had. I would say,
0: absolutely, yeah. I think it's very different for for your generation, you know, because there's been a lot more things to be fearful about than there was then. I don't know that my parents would have, in today's world, allowed this to happen. But at the same time, back then, there was no Internet. You went out to Wisconsin, and the kids in the college there, they never met anybody from New Jersey. It's like, where's New Jersey? And we were like, where's Wisconsin?
1: (laughs) I wonder if there's also perhaps another side effect of that is that because you're coming through, they perhaps assume that you're already famous.
0: Not really. I mean, I think they knew they had their usually each town would have a theater where I remember one town, Gordon Lightfoot was playing in the theater. We were playing in like the student union where somebody had set up a coffee house. So people didn't think of us as famous, but there was something kind of exotic about these people showing up and doing a show in the student union. And there's in the book, there's actually a little clipping from one of the college papers with a review of our show. And I think The review is is very accurate. We were kind of awkward on stage, you know, and we were learning our craft, really. We had six nights a week on stage. We had all day long. Maggie wrote these amazing songs during that period. And, um, And then we had all day long to work on the music. And then we'd have these long drives across these states. And the thing was that the states, you, you really got to know like, Oh, this is what Iowa is like, you know, and then you'd be like, wow, Louisiana, each place had a character about it. And, and it's so like now, you know, where you hear like red states and blue states, there was nothing, there was nothing like that. You maybe we were in a place that was a, where people politically were conservative. I don't know. But that was not a thing about the states. You know, it was like they had their character was like Iowa, corn. You know, you'd have a certain breakfast. You'd get a certain breakfast down south that was different from out west. And, you know, we just developed this kind of love of all the different states. Whereas now it's like people are like, Texas ah uh, you know like you got this divide you know that was not there then
1: This is something that I always try to, to contextualize for myself is sort of, sort of appreciating that that perhaps if the two of you had been black women at the time it might have been a vastly different experience going through some of those areas
0: I can't really say because I'm not you know we weren't
1: There were divides at the time I think they just kind of manifest themselves Differently,
0: Yes, but I'm not even saying that the places themselves were, were not divided. I think part of it had to do with our uh, naivete. We had never been anywhere. You know, we had heard the names of the states, you know, in school, you'd study, you study, you realize that like, Arizona is out west, but you don't really know where Ohio and Illinois you know, and w- where they are. So when we went through these places, it was a very direct experience of the place. Maybe we were fortunate that we didn't run into some trouble, you know? But I just remember really, um, being kind of fascinated by the, the different, uh, terrain, you know, we, when you got out west, you know, all of a sudden there's these plains and then you've got these mountains rising up. You know, the whole thing was just a spectacle that we had never experienced. Our family had never gone on vacation to the Grand Canyon or anything like that, you know?
1: You mentioned Louisiana and that jumps out at me because I've probably listened to the Hammond song dozens, if not hundreds of times and never really understood where that came from and you do address that in the book that you after the album was produced that you moved down there
0: well we got very intimidated the album took a year and a half to make and we worked with all these great musicians i mean the people on that record seductive reasoning if you look at the credits the musician credits there the, a lot of them are the same ones on paul simon's album there goes ryman simon And we were also, he had us sing on that album. They were at the same time being made, those two albums. So, I mean, what an an opportunity was that? I mean, that was like learning how to play baseball from the New York Yankees or, or the Oakland A's. I can see you got your hat on
1: there. I'm in New York now, but I'm still a West Coast boy at heart.
0: But you know what I mean. Like, so all of a sudden, we're we're in with these people who were so much, uh, you know, just really gr- great at what they did and skilled and much older than we were. So when the record was done, the record company, Columbia Records, they wanted us to kind of dress up and look kind of like stars. But, but that wasn't really who we were, you know, we were, <laughs> we were, like I said, so, sort of awkward on stage. When we did the trio, and Susie, who was younger, she's three years younger than I am, she had gone to school for acting, so she sort of was savvy on a stage. You know, she she kind of knew how to be on a stage
1: you stuck her right in the middle too i noticed that
0: well she she was in the middle yeah and but it it was kind of the pressure was off of me and maggie because we could just concentrate on the music which is what we were best at you know and but also the show itself was now entertaining to the audience which was great so it was You know, the three of us were different personalities from each other, which worked really nicely for a a live show.
1: Earlier, you had had alluded to a review that you said was accurate, but in reading through this book and also in a little bit of the research that I did leading up, I saw, of all people, a, a writer that I greatly respect, Grail Marcus, who just didn't seem to get it at the time. Do you feel like that was the case for the first maybe several years that people just didn't quite get what you were doing?
0: I do think that because I think that, um, it was different. And I think the reason it was different, like there's, there's two different kinds of different from what I see. There's people who are trying to be different and original and come up with something that's different. And then there are people who are just different. And I think we're, we're the second group. There was something about Me and Maggie traveling around so young all over the country and only doing our own songs. I don't know anybody else whose entrance into music was that. You know, most of the people I know, they were playing all sorts of Bob Dylan songs and Paul Simon songs and Beatles songs. You know, they weren't just burrowing in with this repertoire of theirs. And that I think is why the music came out a little different. And then also, once we got our trio thing going, it was, I think we all turned out to be pretty good comedians. You know, like Suzy, she knew how to be a character on the stage. And Maggie and I just kind of found our character. Maggie, she had the almost Harpo Marks kind of thing. She, Her personality was naturally that way in a social situation, although not necessarily in a private thing. She was very active and talkative in private, but her thing was to be sort of inward. On stage, uh, we did have one number this song, The Angry, Angry Man, where Maggie all of a sudden explodes and starts dancing, it always reminded me of, like, African dance. You know, she just exploded. And, and you know, of course, the audience went wild. She was, you know, I think all three of us were good comedians in the sense that you'd read the room you know, there were certain things that we said every night, but then you'd follow a thread if if you started to interact with somebody in the audience or with each other and stuff. So the show was fun. And I think that maybe the Griel Marcus problem was that a lot of people, they thought the, the music and the songs were not deep because we were so entertaining, you know. But I think that now, in retrospect, when all there is are the records, there's no more of the live thing. I think people listen to them now and, and realize that, wow, there was a lot of depth there, you know.
1: You're featured on Tiny Tunes.
0: Right, 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 yeah. Oh, I'm exhausted, Maggie. Drive. That way, I can find out if there really is life after death. Ouch! Quit!
1: Grow up! It was a beautiful little short, and I think it really—I assume you worked very closely with the, the writer on that. Um, but it really captured what uh, what I've come to appreciate about the group is there's because of all the things you said there's there's an idiosyncrasy there that I think has made the group last that that maybe if you had conformed a little more closely maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation right now
0: i think that's very perceptive of you you know and it's interesting i've never talked to someone who came to our music through the tiny tunes thing but we worked with the animators they came to our show and they drew those characters and then, of course, we did the singing and the voices were kind of sped up a little bit like, you know, the chip Piss shifted. Yeah. And that was really a fun experience, you know.
1: Again, because you didn't go through the traditional channels, that there was something very unique about that. And there's something about uniqueness that has longevity in the way that conforming often doesn't.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Are you a musician yourself?
1: I have no aptitude for it at all.
0: Well, music really needs listeners. That's what I've noticed. You know what I mean? You know, it's 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 a pleasure to talk to you because you've paid attention to the music. You know, sometimes I'll do an interview with someone and I can tell that the person has not really heard the music. There's so much to listen to out there that you can't really blame someone for not listening. You know, hearing everything that is out there, but it is a pleasure to speak to you.
1: One of the things that's very interesting to me about what you do is there's a lot of built-in beauty there. You know, the two of you and then the three of you harmonize incredibly well. You listen to the Hallelujah Course, and and I think that that initial beauty pulls you in at first, but then you sort of start to discover what is what's different and what's unique about the band.
0: Yeah. And I think one of the things about the songs, like when I listen back now, because at this point, when I listen to things we did 50 years ago, I'm like an audience member more than a person that's doing it. You know, I'm, I'm listening as almost as, as if it wasn't me that did that, you know, and, um, what I notice is that there's a lot of poignant moments in our music, there's a lot of times where, like Maggie's song, The Coat, the, My Winter Coat, you know, that's an eight minute song in which she's describing the things about her coat. And every time I hear that song, I'm like so amazed at the poetry that she found about that. And then also the music, she came up with all the harmonies. She programmed those Uh, synthesizer parts on it. And to me, there's moments during listening to that where I just feel so almost um, melancholy. And you think, how did you wind up feeling melancholy with a song about a cult?
1: Given that she passed not long ago, I think that that's probably baked into it too it can be difficult, it can be bittersweet to go back and listen to this music that she was, when she was so vital.
0: Well, that's true. I think you're right. I think that's part of it. But I also think that there is something about that song, The Coat, and it's in the harmonies and the phrasing of of those lines that I remember when she first played it for us, thinking, you know, wow, you know. I feel like I'm going to cry, and yet you're you're just talking about your coat, you know.
1: <laughs> the Roaches did quite well for them, themselves as a trio. What was your relationship to the duo's music?
0: Well, you know, for me, um, I was not a, I was not a person as a child that wanted to be a singer or wanted to go into show business or anything, you know. When the when the Beatles came out. My parents gave Maggie a nylon string guitar for Christmas. And that January, there was a show coming out of San Francisco, a uh, folk guitar with Laura Weber. And you would learn a song a week. She would teach you the chord. So we had the one guitar. And we. my parents were not musicians. You know, Maggie and I. And my mother, we would pass the guitar. Now it's your turn to make the A chord, you know. And and Maggie immediately started writing her own songs. And then our father, he took one of the one of the songs that we were learning, uh, the Midnight Special. He took that song and wrote words for the local politicians in our town that the democratic politicians my parents were were democrats but we were in a republican town you know so the democrats never won but we were asked to come and sing this song at the vfw hall and then there was a state senator at the dinner dance you know and we got up and sang our song about the the uh candidates and the senator asked us to join his campaign and sing a song about him and then the governor jumped in on this and we we started getting asked to go to these political rallies and that was I was in the grammar school at that point you know so it was like um that was our first experience of, of performing was singing these kind of campaign songs and one of the things we had in our house was we had a record because our father was in the advertising. He used to do commercials for Chrysler. Here's the book, Laura Weber, guitar, folk guitar with Laura Weber. And what you did was you sent away for the book, and then in the book would be songs. Like here's, you know, a... Uh, Drunk, the drunken sailor, you know, so you'd have your chords and then the song, and then she would play the the song, so we had learned a couple songs from the course, and my father took the the midnight special, that particular one, and he wrote words for the candidates, and they were the local people running for council in our town so. Um, It's kind of, oh, because we had this record. <clears throat> because he worked in the advertising thing, he was always in studios doing his work. And he would come home with sometimes the strangest albums that nobody else, like none of your friends had, had in, any of these. They must have been giving them away, you know, at the studio. And one of them was called Sing Along with Millard Fillmore. And this is I've actually run into people who ha they, they had that record when they were a kid. Rarely, but every once in a while somebody says, I had that record too.
1: I think at this point most people couldn't even tell you who Miller Fillmore is.
0: Well, you know what? I couldn't either. You know what I mean? I just well, a remember- former
1: president. That, that's enough.
0: Exactly. And then and so there was a song about these campaign songs. So we had this record in our house, and we would sing along with all these campaign songs. So it was very natural to take the Midnight Special and turn it into one of these songs. Like, So I'm going to demonstrate. Do you mind? By
1: all means. No, absolutely not.
0: So, you know, we had learned, you know... So he, he wrote, he wrote. So the, the candidates, their, their name was Jules Adler, um, Adler, Bob Graham, and then I can't remember the third guy's name, but the song was like Did you ever meet Adler and Graham and Ford? They're running for council not be ignored. Say hello to Bob Graham. He's your kind of man. And when you see him on the council, you're going to be glad he ran. Howard Ford is the third guy. You know, I don't remember that verse, but you get the idea.
1: He's got what? my vote. I'll tell you that much. <laughs>
0: And so imagine like, here's these two girls, you know, 12 and 13 years old, get up and sing that at the dinner dance for the campaign.
1: When you describe Maggie, I, I can really relate deeply to being somebody who is essentially an introvert, but can still get up on stage. I can still talk to you one-on-one. One. If I go to a party, I don't know anybody. I'm I'm going to completely shut down. Yeah, It's a very sort of unique and, for a lot of people difficult to relate to personality type, but it also takes something at age 12 and 13. And then, you know, even later, like 17 and 18 to feel like you can stand out there and perform in front of the crowd, even a small one.
0: Well, you know, it's funny. I think in my case, I think Maggie had much more of a real desire to write songs and express herself in that way. I was more, you know, I, I wanted to be a veterinarian, you know, I wanted to work with animals. I I didn't have a clear sense of what I wanted to do for a living or anything, but I really did get swept up into this because when we were singing these campaign songs and then eventually wound up going on this coffee house circuit, I think one of the reasons for me that I wasn't overly nervous about performing is that that wasn't something I had really wanted to do. So I didn't have a lot of heroes <clears throat> that were like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting so and so. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't really that focused on performing. So I, I don't think I was that nervous about it.
1: You mentioned Dave Van Rock obviously yeah. a, a legend of New York folk music. There's a there's a story in the book about uh, Dylan going to see you. And unfortunately, the two of you didn't cross paths. I mean, you might not have been starstruck, but it still must have been incredible to suddenly be in the middle of this thing and have everybody not only paying attention, but really appreciating what you're doing.
0: Well, I think that came later with the trio. You know, when the trio came out, uh, now we got a lot of attention from the press. You know, it, it was, uh, in the New York Times, they listed our first record as the record of the year, the best record of 1979. And that was a big, you know, there was a big bunch of attention at that point. And, and that's when uh, by then I was older. I was 26, 25, 26 when that uh, record came out. And, and I remember thinking like wherever we went, people were so happy. The audiences were so great that I remember thinking, oh, this is like the Beatles. We're like the Beatles, you know? They're, they're, they're like screaming, you know? And, and I didn't, now I look back and I realize that that's a point in your career. If you're lucky. If you're lucky, that's, but then after that, you better come with something else quickly. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know that. I thought, oh my God, this is, we can stop now. This was a big reaction to get, you know?
1: The part of the book that really struck me the most is, and you refer to it as, I believe, the folder incident, which is a really, which is a big moment that says a lot. I think both about You were still a duo about the two of you at the time, but also, and you alluded to this a little bit earlier, the record industry. And I look at my life and I can only think of you know a very small handful of moments where I felt like my life just completely changed or the trajectory of my life changed. And -hmm. it sounds to me like the folder incident was one for the two of you.
0: Well, I think what happened there was that when we read that review, um, we didn't. You know, this was the this was a guy, sort of a middle management person that was assigned to take us out to dinner, you know, but you know, that worked for Columbia Records. And I remember like it never occurred to us to take that letter to Michael and Paul Simon and say, you know, look what this person said about us, you know. So they instead because Maggie and I had become so bonded and together, you know, tight with each other, we didn't discuss things like that with, you know, we should have said to Paul, like, look what this person said. It really hurt our feelings. And he probably would have said, don't pay attention to that person. That person is just, you know, working for the record company. And, but instead, and, and, You know, to be truthful, that was not the only incident. That, But that was the one that, you know, I think made us really feel humiliated, you know?
1: Broke the camel's back, as they say.
0: Yeah, and we started to feel like we're out of our league. We don't belong. You know, the record company doesn't like the way we look. They don't think we're dressed properly. We're not good on a stage. We don't belong in trying to get a hit record on the radio. And, you know, it's interesting, Brian, because these interviews that I did with all the different people, which is where the quotes come from, the producers, David Hood, Paul Samuel Smith, and Paul Simon, all three of those people in the interviews expressed like, well, why did you guys leave? Like I thought, you were going to be a big sensation, you know. But we didn't discuss our humiliation with anybody. We j- we simply left, and and so that's why I wanted to end with the folder because you know there's a double meaning there. You know, you fold like when you quit.
1: This is a lesson that I've learned the hard way in my own life is, you know, I, I mean, I, I mentioned to you, I was introverted earlier. And a part of that is that when I I'm trying to get better at it, but when I go through something difficult that I tend to shut off, mm-hmm. but I keep it to myself. And I realize yeah. now that that's, that's a big problem. I mean, you obviously, Paul Simon, in particular, you had this incredible champion in your corner.
0: Yes. Yes. And I think that, you know, looking back on it, I realized what happened, you know, and, um, at the time, uh, we just, we just felt like we didn't belong in this position and that Paul was doing a big favor for us, you know, and so we, we, we left, you know, and, um, went down there to Hammond and lived in the Kung Fu Temple, you know. But, you know, I think that, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book and show the music is because I look at it now, I listen to the music, and I think, why did we feel so bad about it, what we were doing? It's like I listen to it now, I'm like amazed at what it was.
1: They have a, a phrase that's really that that's probably overused too much these days, but they call it imposter syndrome. Oh. And it's something that I think I'm not going to say everyone, you know, obviously there are those people in the world who feel like they've completely earned their position, but I, but I think that if you peel back a very thin layer of skin for most artists, they will tell you that there have been many points in their career where they felt like they didn't belong.
0: Yeah. Yes. And I think another point that is in the book uh, was when Paul Simon took Maggie and me to Colony Records And we went through Colony Records and he just would pick something out of a bin and say, you know, you should hear this and you should hear this. And he and that was another moment of realizing that there's a whole world of music that we missed. We didn't hear it. And so, you know what I mean? So. But when I look back on what we did do, I think we we did it, we we were. We were busy doing the music, and you can always catch up and listen to music, you know, and I, I was, I'm kind of hoping that this story will be inspiring to people who have a lack of confidence in themselves, you know, because that's what I feel like I had at that point.
1: Something that also really jumped out at me. One of the quotes, you know, you you did all these interviews for what was, I guess, going to be an oral history initially, but one of, I can't recall which one, but one of the producers effectively said something along the lines of, I wish I had had the courage to just record the two of you and your guitars.
0: Yes. Paul Samuel Smith, he was only 30 years old. We were teenagers, you know, so we were all so young, you know, and he was under a lot of pressure because. We were sent over to England to work with him because he had produced Cat Stevens and he had produced one of the Carly Simon records and he had produced American Tune for Paul Simon. So there was this feeling that, like, let's take the girls and put them with Paul Samuel Smith. But he had a lot of pressure on him to... um, send back to New York something commercial that's going to get on the radio. And there was a moment where uh, we sent back, you know, five or six um, things that we did over there. And Michael and Paul, I guess, thought, no, this is not right. Let's come back and you'll go down to Muscle Shoals. And that's when Maggie went in and sat down at the piano in the studio in london and then i brought my guitar out and samuel smith recorded what we did and it was this extended version of um down the dream which is actually suzzy put on the tribute record that she made to maggie she um, asked me to introduce her to paul samuel smith because she remembers hearing that and it was this long improvised it was a side of maggie that i think what paul samuel smith was saying was cuz he always talks about that track as being the best thing we did over there and you know i think he 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 thinks i should have had the guts to you know say no this is what they're capable of doing
1: with the benefit of hindsight i'm able to to look at the at the decision that the two of you made to to effectively leave the industry for a bit and, and move down to, to Louisiana as a, as a positive one, ultimately, because, I, I you know, I think that that probably played a very large role in what the Roaches became. But it sounds like there's perhaps a little bit of regret when you think about the way that that decision played out.
0: Well, you know, not really for me. I was too young, you know. I feel like my mother was right, you know, I was too young for, I wouldn't change that experience, it's not like I say, oh, I regret, it was an amazing adventure, leaving high school and going all over the country like that, and then wind up, you know, working with Paul Simon and all of his, you know, musicians and learning from all of them, you know, watch being he he allowed us to come to the studio when he was working and we saw him work with all these musicians you know so it was an amazing experience of learning but i do think that i was not really ready for you know i think we were right we were we were not we were given this opportunity but we weren't ready to step into those shoes you know uh, and I remember Paul said something to us, which he probably doesn't remember saying, but it made a big impression on us. He said, he said, you guys are really great at getting attention, but you have no idea what to do with it when you get it. And I thought that was really true. It was like we, a, sh- a light would shine on us and we were like a deer in the headlights. We would just freeze.
1: But when the light shines on you and Suzy's in the band, she's able to absorb that light, it sounds like.
0: Well, I think what happened there was that Suzzy was trained in being on a stage. You know, she had three and a half years of um, she went to SUNY Purchase, which is known for its acting school. She was a major acting major and she was in a lot of plays. She was trained by people what it what to do on a stage. You know, and I think when she came into the thing, I learned a lot from Suzy about being on a stage, you know. And I think Maggie and I started to relax a little because Suzy was sort of getting the audience to respond to all of it, you know. But so I don't really, I don't, I would never trade the experience in that we had because it was really special, you know. It was really and, you know, we probably had to quit at that point.
1: The two of you have that conversation. You, you have that meeting with the record company. You, you move down to to Hammond. What are those conversations like the first day you're there? And, and And where are you as far as whether or not you think you're going to continue doing this music thing?
0: What happened was we had met someone on the coffeehouse circuit. Uh, and he kind of traveled with us for a while on the coffeehouse circuit. We went, he uh, came to, we met him in Louisiana and then he came to um, West Virginia and we traveled around together a bit. And out of the blue, he sends a, a letter to us in New York and it's got a picture of him with his head shaved, and a cape, and he's on a motorcycle. And the, le- the note said, The tongue is soft and remains. The teeth are hard and fall out. And that's actually, I believe, a Buddhist phrase of some sort. But that's what the letter said. And then he said, come down to Louisiana. We have this Kung Fu temple and it was an abandoned uh, building that this group of people had moved into. And we were, they had Kung Fu classes, Tai Chi and yoga. And, and it was in rural. Um, Louisiana Hammond at the time Hammond didn't have a highway that went through it was you know a two lane road to get there and so we we gave up the apartment in New York went down there
1: (laughs) that sounds like a little bit of kismet when you did go down though I mean were you playing music did you think that you would at some point return to all of this
0: Ah uh, no, we were very. Um, I remember feeling I was probably twenty one at that point, and I remember feeling like a has been. You know, I felt like I've already missed the boat. You know, we had this opportunity, and I'm, it, it's over. And I was. Um, we got jobs in restaurant and waitress jobs you know, in the in the local town, and we did not play music. Um, Maggie did write the Hammond song while we were down there, but it's not like we sang it together or anything until when we came back to New York after about a year of being down there or maybe even less. Uh, we started Christmas caroling with, with Suzie, she was on break from school, and she came in, and we worked up these three-part arrangements of Christmas carols. And then when Christmas was over, it was like, let's keep going, you know. Let's, And so that's when And the Hammond song was one of the first ones that we worked on because there was a song, you know, and uh, Maggie had written it when we were down there.
1: Beyond the theatricality that we mentioned earlier, how does how does Suzzy entering the band change the dynamic?
0: Well, you know, three is very different from two uh, musically. You know, there's a lot more room in a two-part thing. A three-part thing, you know, you've got to figure out. And we were always... Um, we always put everybody on a different note from each other. That might be a sim, a sibling thing. You know, sometimes you get three parts where there might be like two women and a man, and the somebody might be an octave below because of their range, you know. Um, but we used to rehearse. We were famous among our friends for the amount of time we spent on the music and the rehearsing, the three of us. We would get in this room and work through, you know, how the arrangements were and write the songs, you know. And we, we got together from Monday through Friday, from 1 o'clock to 5 in the afternoon, like it was a day job. And then we had our waitress jobs around that, like you'd go to your waitress job. And waitressing was great because you could – shift your hours you know and uh it was much cheaper to live in new york then
1: you were generally the the high voice is that right is that just come down to your natural singing range or how 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 does everybody sort of settle into their parts
0: yeah i think it does you know maggie had the widest range of all of us she at times on the record you You might think it's me, but it's her. She could go almost as high as I could, and she was also down in the tenor range, so she had a a lot of more leeway. Susie sang often the inner parts, the middle inner part and and those I think are the most difficult because when you you hear that high voice and you hear that edge of the chord, but hearing the middle of the chord is um you know that's that's hard, that's harder to do with three parts i think
1: i know that there were points that you had gotten back together over over the years i mean it sounds like the three of you certainly the two of you but the three of you were remained quite close but when and why did the roaches end
0: well i think i was the the first one that really wanted to get out and what happened was um Let's see what happened. Well, I I was probably around 38 years old, 37 years old, and I fell in love with Gary Dial, who's a jazz pianist. And I didn't want to be in a hotel room on the phone. I wanted to like I wanted to be home and, and you know have a relationship. And it was his idea that I go back to school and get my music degree, you know, because um, and so I did. I went to SUNY um, Empire State, which a lot of returning students go. So here I was in college at age 40. And I always I always liked studying. And Paul Simon was the one that got us into the studying when, when we met him. He, he was like, you've gotta, you've gotta study something. You, you don't know the names of the chords, you know, you, you don't. And so, um, he found teachers for us, as, as I mentioned in the book. And, um, and I just always, I always loved having a teacher and somebody that was hard, difficult, you know, that where you would really come up against it and be challenged. And so, the combination of wanting to stay home but also I wanted to do di- explore different things like I don't know if you ever heard my group that I had the tr- another trio called Afro Jersey I went to and it again this was a person that I went to for lessons in djembe drum drum lessons and I wound up he kind of tr- drafted me into his band playing guitar and also singing in mandingo which was his language and so then after doing that for a while i thought wouldn't it be interesting if we write songs together and so the rule with afro jersey was that oh and i'll send you a link there's a wonderful little video where we're all interviewed and you hear us playing the music live but the premise of that band was Every song had to have both English and Mandingo in the song and we we both had to sing in the two different languages. So there was a you were not completely in your own element ever, you know. You were doing a little bit of the other person's culture and then our third member Marlon Cherry who he grew up in north carolina he's a bass player he's a multi-instrumentalist wonderful musician and we we kind of drafted he was the only person that came to see us you know we we played in a club and nobody came you know but marlon came and so we 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 told him you got to be in the band and it was his idea to make the cd
1: where are you at now i mean obviously I missed it last week because I was in San Francisco, you know, you, you, you performed at, at city winery. Um, but, but in general, where are you at in terms of music making and performing?
0: I really like to have a project that I'm working on. So, you know, I don't think you ever really stop, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I don't see myself as touring around and, you know, I mean, it was really fun to play in New York. It, it was a great turnout people the show sold out very quickly and that was a big shot in the arm you know that people were interested you know so I I will probably do more things here and there you know but it won't be like I'm going back out on the road you know
1: do you and Suzzy ever perform
0: no uh we don't you know Suzzy and Lucy of course perform and they're and they're more out on the road, you know, in general. I think they uh, are still having a good experience of being out and going from town to town, you know. But I think, I'm not sure, maybe because I got started so young with it, it really, by the time I was your age, I was over it, you know. I was, I was like, I want a home, I want to live somewhere, I want to get a cat, you know?
1: (laughs) I understand the burnout. Not everybody's built to do that for the rest of their lives. I could appreciate that.
0: Also, I always feel like it's the age 40 that a lot of people start to say, okay, I'm ready to go in a different direction with whatever you're doing.